I know that I've repeated this for a couple of weeks now, but I truly believe that if we read the New Testament carefully, our task as we minister to one another is summarized best in a statement that seems to be traced back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That we are called to comfort the troubled and trouble the comfortable. We're called repeatedly in the Scriptures to bear one another's burdens. We're told to mourn with those who are mourning. We're told to reach out in whatever way is possible to meet the needs of those who are hurting, both spiritually and, yes, in terms of physical needs, food, clothing, shelter. But secondly, we're also to trouble the comfortable to trouble those who are finding comfort in some manner that goes against the teaching of God's Word. I cannot endorse or support any relationship or any alternate style of living when it's contrary to what's taught in the Word of God. Another example that came up more than once during the past months as our family traveled from funeral to funeral And while it might be comforting to some to think that their loved ones who have gone on before are looking down on them from heaven, that is not biblical. In fact, if my father could see me with all the mistakes that I make, he'd be disappointed. It wouldn't be heaven for him. And not only that, in a parable that Jesus taught about the rich man and Lazarus, Do you remember how Jesus emphasized that there was a great gulf between and not only could they not see each other, but they couldn't communicate with each other either. We are to trouble those who find false comfort. Yeah, we're to speak the truth in love. We're to, according to Paul in Colossians, we're to see to it that no one is taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Peter says we're to honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that's within you. 1 Peter 3.15 We are to comfort the troubled but we're also to trouble those who have found false comfort that's not in accord with God's Word. Now, let me go back to where I closed last Sunday, to the significance of salt and life. I shared with you four truths that apply to the church both collectively and also to us individually as followers of Jesus Christ, that we are, in fact, to be radically different. Salt is so different that when you put it on something, you immediately taste it. And when it's absent, absent, you notice that it's not there. Or if something is starting to age, salt stops that bacteria process. 
And I shared, remember the example of a good old Kentucky ham that can hang right out there in the middle of the store without any refrigeration and not go bad. Why? Because it is salted. Secondly, not only are we to uh, be different, we're to permeate society. The salt does no good if it doesn't get into it. Uh, I always said that you know, my mom would always cook with salt. And it always surprised me how people would go ahead and grab the salt shaker and start shaking it on the food before they even tasted whether or not she had cooked it. And, and I'd ask her one time, why do you put the salt in there? Because everybody's just going to salt it anyway. And she says, because it has to penetrate the food to do any good. Now, I'm going to be honest though, when I eat corn on the cob, I want that salt right there on the outside. <laughs> We're to permeate society, not to cloister ourselves, not to be hermits, but to be out there among. And thirdly, I shared that we can know, we can know that we can influence and change society. Great changes in the world have happened when less than 2% of the group decided to make a change. Alright? I can, I can tell you an example of that without going into a lot of detail. Little church down in Tazewell, Indiana decided that the uniforms that the girls were wearing during the ball games when they went out and did their dance maneuvers the new uniforms were a little too revealing. And they wrote a letter. That's all they did. They didn't go on protest, wave flags. They just wrote a letter talking about their concern. Members of the board, when they read the letter, said, you know what, people have said something to us too. And so they made a change in the outfit. And it all started from a little group of people not any bigger than what we are. We can have an influence. We can bring about change. And then lastly, I talked about how we need to retain our distinctiveness. We must be different. As Peter wrote, according even to the King James Version, I like, that's one of the things that I like about the King James Version. Peter said, we are to be a peculiar people. Different. People that stand out. Salt has to retain its saltiness. Otherwise, it's useless. It won't even do any good if you throw it on a compost yeast because it can't do anything to the bacteria once it's useless. And Jesus, in fact, said the only thing you can do with it is throw it out on the roadway and hope that it helps you get some better footing on the roadway. Light has to stay bright. Otherwise, it'll never dispel the darkness. One of the things that I learned, and I think I shared this with you when I had my cataract surgery, was how much easier it was to tell between some colors when the light was different. And we talked about that this morning, Pat and I did, back in the office. The difference that light can make on some things. We need bright light. How many of you, when you were trying to read something, when the print was small, you didn't necessarily get a magnifying glass, but you did take it over to where there was a little better light. Because that, sometimes that in and of itself helps. In the same way, 
You and I as Christians, if we're to influence society, we must not only permeate it, but we also must refuse to conform to it. Remember what Paul said to the Christians at Rome? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And this is such a radical change that he uses an example, the word that we use to talk about the ugly caterpillar becoming the beautiful butterfly. Metamorphosis. And I don't know if you realize it, but do you know how hard it is for that change to take place? I decided one time when I was young, when I saw a cocoon and a butterfly working really hard to get out of that cocoon, I decided I would assist it. And so I got a razor blade and I very carefully separated that cocoon so it would be easier for the butterfly to do what it needed to do. Do you know what I did? I stopped that butterfly from getting the moisture squeezed out of its wings so that it could fly. Instead of releasing it, I put it under bondage. It's not an easy process to make that change. And it's not, not easy for you and I to make the changes. J.C. Penney lamented after years of being a Christian, he lamented the fact that he was still struggling with his vocabulary. With tears running down in his face when I saw him say it. What then are our Christian distinctives? What is the salt and the light with which we are told to be? And I see, I think that's where the rest of the Sermon on the Mount comes in. For in that sermon, Jesus describes the citizens of the kingdom, the members of the new community. And as citizens of the kingdom, as we strive to be the church that we're called to be, we need to remember, first of all, that we're called to a greater righteousness. Remember what Jesus said as He was winding up His introduction? Not the sermon, the introduction. The Beatitudes and the talk about salt and light, all of that was a part of His introduction. So I don't feel bad having long introductions sometimes. When He's winding up His introduction to the sermon, verse 20 He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and in some translations, the teachers of the law, you'll never, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the disciples must have been dumbfounded when they heard these words. For the scribes and the Pharisees were the most religious people they knew, the most righteous people they knew. They calculated that the law contained 248 commands and 365 prohibitions. Does that number 365 ring a bell by chance? One, one don't do this for every day of the year. But total, 613 regulations altogether. And they claimed to keep the whole lot. 
And now they hear Jesus saying that unless they, His disciples, are more righteous than the most righteous people that they knew, they'll never enter the kingdom. I'm sure they're sitting there saying, is this guy okay? Has he gone off the deep end? Has he lost his mind? No. Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it is deeper. It's not a righteousness that can be measured by external observance. It's a righteousness of the heart. Therefore, it necessitates a new heart by means of a new birth. It necessitates a new mind by means of renewal. Not a change that results from sorrow. Now, repentance does include feeling sorry. But it's a lot more than that. You know that in Matthew 27, 3, that we are told that Judas changed his mind. The Bible there uses a different word though. It uses the word metamelomai when Judas changed his mind because that word is based on sorrow and based on regret for having done something. But it's not a word that's based on change. And so the word in the New Testament for repentance is not metamelomai, it's metanoia, a change of mind. Now let me illustrate. Here is metanoia. I'm going in this direction and I realize that I've done something wrong. I feel bad about it. I'm sorry about it. So what do I do? Do I step around the barrier and just keep going? No, that's metamelomai. Metanoia is I come to a point in my life where I know I'm doing something wrong, so I make a turn, I go back to where I got off track and started doing wrong, and I make the change necessary to live in the right way. We're called to a greater righteousness. Secondly, we're called to a wider love. Now, for those of you that have been attending the Wednesday night Bible studies, this is going to be a review for you for a second. But after the call to a greater righteousness, Jesus illustrates what He means by giving six triads. A lot of times people have taught these as antitheses. I know it is written, but I say they're really triads. There's a third part. You study it carefully. In the second part, there are no commands. Jesus said, I know it's written, but here is the way we live. Here's what you need to be doing. There are three parts. And there are no commands in the second part. All of the commands are in the third part as to what we need to be doing. And for instance, in the sixth of these, Matthew 5.43, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be complete, perfect, whole, as your Heavenly Father is perfect, complete, whole. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Say, well, where in the world, Jesus, would you come up with that? I mean, to be honest, it's a scandalous misquotation of the Old Testament. And I don't think Jesus would have done such a misquotation of the Old Testament. I'll tell you where it came from. It came from the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. They said that if the Old Testament law, the Torah, Leviticus 19.18, simply said, love your neighbor, then indulging a little bit of casuistry, they said to themselves, well, my neighbor is my co-religionist. Therefore, if it's only my neighbor that I'm loved, the law gives me permission to hate my enemy. And Jesus responded to that way they were living by insisting that in the vocabulary of God, our neighbor includes our enemy. Now, we're going to cover this a little more in a little more detail in December because the week after next, I am starting a series of sermons called The Stories Jesus Told. And we're going to go into the parables. But in the parable that we know of as the Good Samaritan, you'll find it in Luke 10, Jesus actually turns the table and the lawyer answers the question correctly. The lawyer says, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you're a scholar, you're a lawyer, you're a leader. How do you read the law? How do you interpret it? And the lawyer said, correctly, love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind, and love our neighbor as ourselves." And Jesus commended him for that reading of the Scripture in that way. But the, but the lawyer wasn't happy with that because he knew he was one of those who said, but my neighbor is just those people that are like me who worship like me, who believe like me, who, who have the same background as me. And so the lawyer said, and Luke writes, in order to justify himself, he said, well, who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells this story. A story that they were familiar with. Because many of them had gone on that road to Jericho and they knew of many people that had been jumped in those rocky hills and robbed. And he said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And that happened. He got robbed and left for dead. And a priest comes by and sees him. 
And what's the priest do? Passes by on the other side. Because you see, if he'd have gone over and touched that man to see if he was alive still, and he was dead, he wouldn't have been able to go to work for the next week. He'd have had to purify himself because he would have been richly unclean. And so he passed by on the other side. A Levite came by, another member of the priestly family, one who worked in the temple. What did he do? The same thing. Passed by on the other side. And then Jesus puts that little thing into the story by which every one of those Jewish people standing there and that devout lawyer would have said, No! Because then He said, Then a Samaritan came by. One of those. A half-breed. Why, they were the people that married the Gentiles during the exile. It's close to home in some ways, doesn't it? Samaritan came by. But what did the Samaritan do? He took care of the guy. He left enough money. Actually, he put him on his animal which would have made his animal unclean because of the blood. He took him to a place to get him help and he gave what was a significant amount of money to care for him and then a promise that he'd come back and pay if there was any more. And Jesus said to the lawyer, who was the neighbor? I don't know if you've ever hated anybody this much. I hope not. But the lawyer said, I guess the man who gave aid. He couldn't even say the Samaritan was the neighbor. You see, Jesus calls us to a wider love. A love that is not just to be a love for our kind, but a love that's to include our enemies. And we will demonstrate that we are authentic children of our Heavenly Father when we do just that. And Jesus said, think about it. Doesn't God give sunshine and rain to all people indiscriminately? His love is all-embracing. And ours must be too. Thirdly, we're called to a nobler ambition. Some people believe that all human beings are ambitious. But I'm not sure that's the truth. I find it hard to label people as truly ambitious unless they're willing to make sacrifices in the name of their ambition. They want, might want a better, higher paying job. But they don't want to do the work. They don't want to get the schooling. They don't want to make the sacrifices needed to get that job or advancement. And even though the end of their ambition may not be worth their sacrifices, and it may never be reached or even approached, they still aren't willing to do the work to get there. It could even be argued that with much, that is with most selfish, what is often referred to as pure ambitions, the end is never really worth the sacrifice. Fortunately, Ambition is rarely pure, but usually intermingled with some unselfish aims and motives. 
even if these may be more incidental than deliberate. And it may be that our greatest achievements are all, or almost all, actually accidents of our ambition. You know, many people understand ambition as a desire to succeed. But what did Jesus describe as ambition? Jesus said that ambition is what we seek, what we set our hearts on as the supreme good to which we devote our lives. And in the end, Jesus teaches there are only two options. He says that either we love ourselves and want to make sure of our own material comfort, the me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity, or we seek God's kingdom and righteousness first. Chapter 6 of the same Sermon on the Mount. To become absorbed with ourselves and our bodies, food, drink, and clothing, is a hopelessly inadequate preoccupation. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus has already established what our priority, priority should be. We begin by saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But then, give us this day, what? Our daily bread. I should have had a t-shirt made of that. That said, give us this day our daily need for toilet paper. And worn that around when everybody was hoarding. Or give us this day our daily bread when they started hoarding the bread to make sure that they were taken care of. You see, we're called to a nobler ambition than hedonism, self-gratification, pleasure. Here then is the call of Christ to a greater righteousness, a righteousness of the heart, a wider love that includes even our enemies, and a nobler ambition. God's rule and God's righteousness. And only then will our salt retain its saltiness and our light retain its brightness so that we will be salt and light to the world. So, now that my introduction is done, <laughs> let's get to my text. Luke 10, and I'm just going to read the first three verses of the text. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of Him, two by two, into every town and place where He Himself was about to go. He didn't ask them to do something He wasn't going to do. And He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. See what it says? Behold, I'm sending you out. Now, I know that he was addressing specifically the 72. However, it can be demonstrated over and over that a part of our task as Christians is that we are to be witnessing to others about the love of God as we were commissioned to do 
the love of God that's demonstrated in the gift, the, the sending of His Son. I mean, when Jesus was saying His last words to His disciples, He said, as you're going into the world, make disciples, make followers of Jesus. And lambs in the midst of wolves? It does sound a little threatening, doesn't it? But remember, He also said, unless you are persecuted like I will be persecuted, you really don't have any part in me. If you're a follower, if you're a believer, if you are living the Christian life as you're to be living it, you are going to be persecuted. That's the Bible. So the question that we need to answer individually for ourselves and collectively as a church is whether or not we're willing to do what is basic to being the church. Now, I'm wrapping up this sermon series. We need to know what we are to be all about. Church isn't about just gathering. You realize, don't you, that most social clubs fulfill that function? It's not just about gathering on Sunday. We're to be influencing and changing the world. And I believe that we can do it. John Stott, in that little book that I encouraged you to read, in his closing section says, Christ has commissioned us to be effective salt and light in the world. So let us offer ourselves to God as agents of change. So here's my question. Are you willing? This is the action point. I asked Kay to make these pages for me. There are six of them. Pages out of our directory. I would like either six of you to commit yourself to taking one page, or some of you can take two. But in the coming days, I would like everybody in our directory to get a phone call, or if there's not a phone number and you can't find one, there are addresses, a little postcard or card with, first of all, the question, how can we pray for you? Okay? How can we pray for you? And then, if it's somebody that we haven't seen for a while, we miss you. And I just want to remind you that this coming Sunday is going to be Homecoming Sunday. And we're going to have Brent Song back with us and we'd like you to come and be a part of, of our Homecoming Sunday, Sunday night, and Monday night. But first of all, people don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. Start the conversation off. Start the postcard off with... How can we pray for you? With everything that's happened over the last two years, how can we pray for you? So. And it needs to be in the mail probably by, by Tuesday. If it's mailed, it needs to be in the mail by Tuesday for them to get it. So, I have six pages. 
I need either six who will take one or some of you who will take two and commit to calling everybody on these pages. All right? Now, we're going to do it a little differently. I'm going to have Cindy and Rich come up and help us to start singing our hymn of commitment. And our hymn of commitment is when the role was called up yonder. Mark and I were talking about this Wednesday night. If right now I heard the screeching of tires and a collision out on the highway, I would drop these papers and go. Because I was trained in first aid and knowing how to care for people involved in motor vehicle accidents. My dad and I were sitting in their trailer in Florida and we heard that kind. And I said to my dad, because my previous career was an, as an accident reconstructionist for the Louisville Police Department, I said to my dad, either somebody just got killed or they are very, very serious. And we jumped up and ran out to the highway. And a man did lose his life. Folks, all around us are people that when the roll is called up yonder, they won't be there unless we reach out. So we're going to start singing. And if you're willing to take one of these, and if y'all want one, I'll put one, one back for y'all. Okay? If you want one, just stand and as we're singing and as I walk around, just either hold up one finger or hold up two or hold up three. Now let me tell you this. Remember what it said about how he's sending them to towns that he himself had already been to or was going to go to? I'm going to call or send a note to everybody in our directory within the next two days. So they'll be getting two, one from me and one from one of you all. All right? Let's stand and let's sing.
anything that we need to bring up in closing that we forgot to bring up or needs to be reiterated or anything? Bible study Wednesday night. And my wife told me today to write on her little card what she needs to get at the store so that I can make you all chili. So we're going to have chili, and we are going to have some chicken noodle soup for those that don't eat chili. All right? So that's Wednesday night at 6.30. We're at chapter 23 of Matthew. All right? Anything else? Garden's funeral. Visitation Thursday night, 5 to 7 at Gert's service here at 11 o'clock with visitation ahead of time. Meal to follow the burial. And uh, I've been notified uh, and confirmed that there is going to be a group from the Legion that are going to be here both Thursday night at visitation, near the end of visitation, as well as on Friday for the service. Fire department is also going to be here in honor of how he gave so much to the fire department. So that's Thursday and Friday. All right. Hey, you don't want to dress up. I understand. I'm not a Halloween person. I'm not. I'm going to be dressed up like Moses, and I'm going to pass the word out about what we're trying to do as a little church. Uh, looking like Moses. I got the beard part of it now. I'm, you know, I'm going to cover the dark hair. You might want to wear a coat. Because so. <laughs> we're going to be outside. We've got the stuff for you to give out. We've got the food. Yeah, just all, come. all we need is people that are willing to yep. come and take a bucket, open their trunk, and be there for different stations to hand it out. And by the seven, if you can get up here early to help, that's great. Hey guys, we're so glad you're here today with us. One of the things we do, if you don't feel comfortable with it, we certainly understand, but one of the things we do is we form a big shape and hold hands as we sing our closing doors. We just kind of move into the center, and so uh, that's what we're about to do now.
she was texting to you because I've been thinking about it all weekend. Friday afternoon. I can't remember the guy's name. The guy showed up at the door.